we had these people we had really admired that always said that is the cool thing is to run a company for 30 years, right? And keep doing the same thing for like 30 years. And we thought for ourselves like, hey, is this the business that we want to run for 30 years? And the answer was no. Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris. This season, we've been speaking with entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled and sold their companies with a particular focus in the conversation on the exit. And today, for the season finale, we hear from the serial entrepreneur Enrique Dubugras. These days, Enrique is the co-CEO of Brex, a fintech startup valued at over $2 billion. But Enrique's entrepreneurial journey started while programming video games when he was just 12 years old. And while Enrique is still in his early 20s, he's already started five companies and has so much to share with us. In this episode, we walk through Enrique's career and fill in the chapters between video games and Silicon Valley. Along the way, we make sure to stop and dive into his decision-making processes at several key moments of his entrepreneurial experience. Come on and join me for the ride. Enrique Dubugras, it is so great to be here with you and it's such a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. It is um, you know, a privilege to be here with you. This season of Access and Opportunity, we're focusing on entrepreneurs' exits. And I am particularly excited to have you here because despite the fact that you are still in your early 20s, you have started five companies. And each company has its own story, its own unique exit, and all the way from just pulling the plug on one company to actually successfully selling another and continuing to grow, yet the one that you're on now, Brex, and we're going to talk about that, Let's talk about how you got introduced to technology and how you started to create your own company. So my story starts, I was originally born and raised in Brazil, and there was this game I wanted to play, and it was like a paid game. I went to ask my parents, and they're like, oh, I'm not going to pay for any computer games for you. So I Googled, and I learned that if I learned how to code, I could play it for free. So then I started learning how to code, and I kind of created a copy of the game, like kind of like a pirate version of it that instead of paying like a monthly fee to pay it, it was free. But you could buy items inside the game to get advantages. So it kind of had a business model somehow. But you you learned how to code on your own? There was no class? No, what what did you do? How did you learn how to code? It was Google. I was just like, you know, how do you code? And then I saw programming languages and I picked one. And then, you know, I kind of started learning that one. Wow. And so what happened with, with the company ultimately? Did you get other people to play the game or were you just playing the game? So we got a bunch of people to play the game. And we actually <laughs> made quite some bit of money with it. Wow. So tell me, how did you make a lot of money with it? I mean, what made you think about the commerce side of it? You started off just wanting to play the game. Yeah. Um, there were other games that kind of sold items inside the game, and I thought that was like a smart model. And, you know, I wanted to make some money to buy more games and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, hey, let me maybe charge people and see if maybe, like, but I was expecting to make, you know, like 
hundreds of dollars, if that makes sense. And, you know, we definitely made a lot more than that. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> As they say, necessity is the mother of invention and you needed to play the game. Yeah. So after a few months, I got this cease and desist letter saying it was breaking some sort of patents. Yes. I didn't know what patents were per se, but my mom got super upset and told me to shut everything off. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think it's a great playbook point that you did not allow fear or lack of knowledge or lack of domain expertise in a thing to stop you from going forward with creating that. Okay, so first company done. Mom says, shut it down. So let's talk about the second company and how you got the idea for that. Yeah, so after, you know, the the game was shut down, I basically um, didn't know what to do with my life. So I started doing some normal stuff. At 13 or 14? 14, yes. (laughs) Um, So I started doing some normal stuff. So I think, like, I found a girlfriend. I started watching TV shows and... I watched this TV show called uh, Chuck that was like a really good programmer and hacker. And he traveled around the world saving, you know, the world of code. And Chuck had gone to Stanford. And at that point, I was like, I want to be like Chuck. So I need to go to Stanford, too, because Chuck went to Stanford. And I didn't really know what Stanford was too much at the time, but I just decided I wanted to go. But for Brazilians, the whole U.S. application process is actually quite complicated. The like essays, SATs, like I didn't really understand how any of those things worked. Mm-hmm. So I found another Brazilian guy that was graduating from Stanford uh, online. I found him on Facebook. And I tried to convince him to teach me the Stanford application process. And he was starting a company at the time. So we made this deal in which I would code for his company for free. In exchange, he would teach me the Stanford application process. Wow. So that's kind of how I got into startups and, you know, kind of like real companies was like by working with this guy. And then after a year, I decided that I wanted to start my own company because, I don't know, he did it. Maybe I could do it, too. And that's when I started my first uh, education company mm-hmm. that got what I learned, you know, how to the Stanford application process work for Brazilians and, you know, try to teach that for students. So how can I help other students that want to go study in the U.S.? Yes. And that got a lot of users, um, and most of the money I had made in my game, I invested in it, but it didn't really generate any revenue, so it Mm -hmm. failed kind of miserably. Mm -hmm. Um, So then after that, I went to do this hackathon in Miami, um, because I did it because I had these huge fights with my mom, and uh, basically, uh, you know, I had to get emancipated, moved out of my house, it was this whole drama, and there was this hackathon that was worth money, um, $50,000, and I was like, if I can win this thing, it was like more time, and I'm going back to my mom. So I went to this hackathon and I built this app called Ask Me Out, which was like Tinder, but instead of geolocation, it was Facebook friends. You could like and match your Facebook friends. Turns out we won that hackathon, that competition, and came back to Brazil and tried to implement payments in it so we can charge people. And that's my first experience with payments. And that's kind of how we saw the opportunity. It was like such a bad experience. Okay, so tell me exactly what was the monetization challenge around Ask Me Out? So the main problem was actually setting up the payments. Uh, You know, they asked, hey, what is your website? And I said, like, I don't have one. Like, I need to have payments to have one. And it was like, well, but without a website, you know, I can give you payments. Like, what what should I do? And then after getting the money was really hard. The APIs were really bad. It was just like a a very bad experience in general. It took like weeks. You know, I met my co-founder around that time and we decided, hey, there's probably a better way of doing this. So let's take us to the next company. I think it was Pagatomy? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Tell me uh, your co-founder's name and a little bit about him, if you like. Yeah, no, my, my co-founder is named Pedro. He's actually much smarter than I am. Um, and uh, he's from Rio. And um, so we started that company. We were both last year of high school. Mm-hmm. 
And we were lucky, I guess, that payments is such a good business by itself um, that we stumbled onto a, a good business with a good business model. But we grew that company from the two of us to you know roughly 150 employees and a, a billion and a half in transaction volume. So we got to like a medium-sized company. And then we sold it in uh, September 2016. Now, let's talk a little bit about that because there are so many playbook points I hear there. <laughs> How old were you now? You started Pogarmi last 16. year. So you're 16, going on 17. You're junior yeah. going into your senior year of high school. Yeah. And you grew this company over a couple of years? Three and a half Three years. and a half years to 100 employees. Now, how does a 17, 18, 19-year-old decide who they're going to hire into their company? How did you think about that with zero experience, really, of hiring people and interviewing people? Yeah, so the first thing was, like, our friends. Um, so the first person that we hired was this guy who used to do my homework for me when I was too busy. And he got all, like, 100%. And, you know, he was like, hey, if you can get like 100% of all my homeworks, um, you know, maybe he can, you know, be a great coder. So we kind of taught him how to code. <laughs> and uh, he kind of joined as the first employee. So it was like kind of stories like that. Just people from our, you know, network. The other one used to play the game with me back then and learn how to code as well as a teenager. So we kind of like just try to assemble people that were similar to us. So in the beginning, though, you needed coding help. That's what you needed in order yeah. to expand the business, yeah. right? And to make the... Uh, product a little bit more user-friendly and a little bit more competitive in the market. Exactly. But, but as you grew, did you need other administrative functions like maybe a marketing person or maybe someone to, you know, do the infrastructure, the HR kind of things that one would need in a medium-sized company? We, we did. We did. And I think we were lucky that we both spoke English. And uh, there's a lot of blogs and stuff online about all these things. So we actually read a lot of Silicon Valley material through the blogosphere uh, to learn how to find a marketing person and what those people are supposed to do. And we read books. So it was a lot of self, self-talk. self Okay. And that's how you went from there to find them because you would read a blog that says a good marketing person has these five characteristics and you went out looking for those things. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We just linked to LinkedIn and started searching and you know, wow. reaching out. Well, this is an important playbook point because again, so many people start companies and they think, okay, I have this domain experience, but I don't know how to do these other things. And they end up having a lot of missteps. So I wanted to make it really clear for our audience exactly how you went about figuring those things out at such a young age with no experience and really heavily leveraging the internet and the information that you saw out there, and then you just execute it. Exactly. From there. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about that exit. Um, so what happened is, you know, in 2014, we both got into Stanford, which was, um, you know, lucky that both of us got in. And we didn't know if we were going to go, right? Because this company was doing super well. It was like, you know, having tens of millions in revenue and, uh, you know, like, hey, if we just stay here, this is going to become like, you know, a, a big company if we just keep keep executing. Uh, so why go to college at all? Like, why go to Stanford? Why why do this? Right. And um, and we ended up deciding to sell for, you know, three kind of like key reasons. Uh, the first one was we, we had these people we had really admired that always said that is the cool thing is to run a company for 30 years. Right. And keep doing the same thing for like 30 years. Yeah. Um, and we were really excited about doing that. And we thought for ourselves, like, hey, is this the business that we want to run for 30 years? And the answer was no. And the reason was, you know, if we're going to run something for 30 years, we want it to be global. And it was Brazil-specific. And we didn't think we had a lot of chance competing with global companies. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, okay, this is not a company we're going to, you know, do for 30 years. Number two, like, my dream was to go to Stanford, right, since I was 14. And I kind of wanted to check it out and see how this college thing is. Yeah. 
And then number three was, you know, we were 20 and broke and it was like something that would change our lives. So, you know, it was very tempting. Yes. So I think joined those three factors, we decided to sell the company. So how did you run into Stone Pagamentos? Uh, they were our first investor. So they had been watching you along the way. Yeah. So they just made the offer one day? Um, yeah, when we, you know, basically at some point Stanford came to us and said, hey, either you come or you don't. Like, we're not going to extend your, you know, your, your leave. Your leave. Let me be clear. You deferred enrollment at Stanford. Yeah. So we took uh, two, two years of leave of absence. And then we went to them and it's like, what do you do? And you know, like, he's like, they're like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I think I want to go. And they're like, okay, uh, you know, we can, can buy the company. Outstanding. That, yeah. That's pretty convenient. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, what would you say to other entrepreneurs about how you might create a market or how you might make the connections to people that could be potential acquirers? What advice would you give? I think the most important advice is companies, they're bought, they're not sold. Um, hmm. In the sense of if you try to sell yourself too much, you know, people are going to be like, well, why are you selling? You're like, you know, isn't this a good business kind of thing? So what you have to do is build these relationships like early on and just share your success with people over time. Um, and whenever there is an opportunity, like they will have you in mind. If you just like whenever you want to sell, then start meeting all these people for the first time, they'll think there's something wrong with your company. Very fair point. Very fair point. Okay, now hindsight is twenty twenty. If you yeah. had to make the decision now, knowing what you know with another three or four years of experience, do you think you sold at the right time or would you Definitely have... not. We okay. would have sold a lot more if we just stayed two or three more years. Wow. But I don't know if we would have been we would have done Brex, right? Maybe someone else would have done Brex yeah. if we hadn't. So definitely, you know, with all the information, you know, I definitely would have sold. Brex is doing much better than that company was. Yes. But just as, you know, understanding like what were the risks now, probably mm-hmm. we should have kept it. Yes. Now, let me ask you one more question about that experience. Yeah. Looking back, what do you think you were missing, if anything, in the company, in the infrastructure, around your own knowledge, around strategy that would have allowed you to see some of the things that you can see now in hindsight? Was there anything that you said, boy, if I had had an X or if I had done a Y, that would have made all the difference and maybe we would have hung in there? I think like we didn't have a lot of idea of how to value the company. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of revenue, but you know, in Brazil, all these companies were valued in terms of like multiples of earnings, right? Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that many earn- earnings. So we didn't know how big the company could be. Mm-hmm. Um, because we didn't know how to value it mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you brought up that point because I wanted, again, early stage entrepreneurs, I think that is a major gap in Enrique. Most of the time they sell too early, either because the fundraising journey is just so hard and it's particularly hard for multicultural entrepreneurs and for women. So either they get tempted with a great offer and faced with the decision of, do I take this offer? Do I go out yet again to try to raise some capital? They say, you know what, I'm I'm just going to take this offer right now. Or they don't really understand the value of a company. So again, that offer... sounds attractive, especially if the number is bigger than they had ever imagined that they might get for the company. And that tempts them without understanding how to value it. And they end up selling. So again, now knowing what you know, you have now raised, you know, several rounds of financing. Going back to the 17-year-old, 18-year-old, who might you tap now to try to help you understand how to value the company? I think if I had 
had more like international investors mm-hmm. in the company that were seeing how the market developed in more developed countries. That would have been really helpful. The other thing I think it's super important, and uh, you know, this is a little bit controversial, but if we had had a little bit of liquidity along the way, mm-hmm. it would have made everything like so much like more longer term. Yeah. Because the thing is, like, you start a company and you're making like a low salary and you're like super poor. You know, it's hard to keep going for a long time. Yeah. Fair point. So I think that you know. If during the way we had even a tiny bit of liquidity, we would have kind of taken off the pressure and took a lot more longer term view. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's controversial because people say if you're that hungry, then you'll keep going. But if you get a little bit of a, of a break in that hunger, then you might not work as hard. That's yeah. what investors worry about. Yeah. But I think like if you're ambitious and you work hard, you know, it's it's not going to be the money that's going to change that. You work because you're passionate and you want to build something. You want to change the world in some way. Yeah, I would agree. So I recently spoke with Doug Song and he's the founder of dual security and he said there are two ways to go about being an entrepreneur or at least the mindset either you start a business that you know that you're going to build and run forever to your point about someone says doing this for 30 years or you become a serial entrepreneur with a planned exit so you say i know that i don't want to do this for 30 years i want to do this make it really successful and then i want to go on to the next thing i'm in a hurry to get to my next thing how would you have characterized yourself at 16 and how would you characterize yourself today I think there's this old banking expression that was very popular in Brazil, which it was like, pobre, com fome e desesperado para ficar rico. Poor, hungry, and desperate to get rich. I was definitely in that category early okay. on. And uh, I think I was more thinking about, you know, hey, how can I sell this company and do a next company? Like the exit was like the thing, you know? Now, like, I only think about how do I run a company for the longest time possible and set the culture that will, you know, even withstand after I I leave the company for some reason. So, and the other thing is, you know, we thought about it. We took the break in Stanford and we figured out we don't really like starting companies. We don't really like investing. The only thing we like to do is running companies. So why would we sell and go do anything else? (laughs) Well, you know, that's really interesting, Enrique, because um, I would have to say that I think you've just evolved because everything that I've read about you heretofore and even listening to your story now tells me that you had quite a thrill in starting these companies. Yeah. But now, as you have evolved as a leader, as you have been able to absorb the impact that your success could have on other people that are working with you and for you, now your appetite has grown to actually do the thing. Yeah, I think, you know, for example, when we sold a company, it was the nicest thing for me is to see the employees who actually, you know, made some money actually, like, be super happy about it, right? And I think at Brex, we're going to be able to do that at such much more scale and impact, like, so many lives, not only our employees, but our customers and, you know, everyone, every stakeholder. And that actually, you know, it motivates me a lot. Yeah, having played in both markets, is there a difference in your mind of the process around building a company and attracting capital in Brazil or internationally broadly, as you know it, versus what you have observed or what you have experienced here in the U.S.? It's very different. And Brazil is now looking a little bit more like the U.S. Here you invest and you expect to make a return out of an IPO or a sale in Brazil, most investors expected to make a return out of dividends. Like, you know, you invest, you buy X percent of a company, and then eventually the company is going to dividend me back the money, mm-hmm. you know, in a few years. So that changes a lot the mentality of, like, sure. who's investing and how they're investing and things like that. Wow. And what about connecting to the sources of money? 
Is there a, yet a further distinction uh, in Brazil away from just, you know, the actual asset value and the dividends? Is there another distinction if you are multicultural or if you're a woman or getting into those networks? I think it's just hard in general. I think it's definitely especially hard for multicultural and women, especially in Brazil. Mm. Um, because, you know, here there's like, a lot of examples and these efforts of, you know, actually successful entrepreneurs and successful women entrepreneurs, at least something to point to. In Brazil, there's none, right? Yeah. Um, okay. And the culture is very, like, most of the country is, you know, men works and the woman stays home. And, you know, that's how the, the culture is. And mm-hmm. it's a very Catholic country. So it's definitely, like, an extra set of challenges. And I think for us, the extra set of challenges, we were, like, 16. So it's not like a lot of people were taking us that seriously. Ah, so you did face uh, another challenge, and that was being young. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, here, we never face any challenge like that because there are, like, other entrepreneurs that paved the way, like, you know, Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, like, all these, Eva Spiegel, like, all these entrepreneurs kind of, like, said it's okay being young. We can still build a big company. But in Brazil, like, there was no one, right? Okay. So now let's talk about the next company. Brex. Yes. So we came to Silicon Food Stanford, right? And... You know, we were super excited to be in college, but then, I don't know, I just we just felt that the world was moving and we were there kind of studying the past a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, that was your view. Okay. <laughs> I'm at Stanford and I'm studying the past. Okay. All, all right, Enrique. I'll buy that. I'm sure your parents were looking at you like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Well, my mom was happy that I was going to college at all, so I think <laughs> <laughs> okay. for the longest time, there's a real chance I wouldn't go to college, yeah. right? But, you know, it was fun uh, for a couple of months, and then we decided we wanted to start another company. And then we tried to start a virtual reality company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we got into Y Combinator, the accelerator. And again, at that point, everything was much easier because we had held an, an exit before. Mm-hmm. Like kind of like a lot of doors just open up if that happened. So a lot of the access problems that you have as a first-time entrepreneur, you don't have it as much as okay. a second-time entrepreneur. Because now you have a reputation of being a successful entrepreneur who has had a successful exit. Exactly. It makes okay. things much easier. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, we got into Y Combinator with, like, an idea that was not great, but it was mostly our background and track record that got us in. You know, and what happened for us as uh, Brazilian founders is that, personally, we couldn't get a credit card mm-hmm. because we didn't have any FICO. Even mm-hmm. though we had sold a company in Brazil, we couldn't get any credit here. cards here. It wasn't yeah. here, so we don't have FICO, right? Mm-hmm. And there was all these other companies that had raised, like, you know, millions of dollars, but because their business was so new, they also couldn't get a credit card, especially, like, you know, people of color or, you know, women and things like that. Why can someone raise millions of dollars and not get a credit card? Like, it makes no sense. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then within Y Combinator, we actually decided to pivot back to fintech and payments because we just decided that's what we love, you know? We grew to love fintech. We grew to love payments. That's kind of, like, the sector that we love, and we wanted to build something there. So we, we pivoted back, and that's kind of how the idea of Brex came Yes. Came about. Um, and today what we do is uh, corporate credit cards and corporate cash management accounts mm-hmm. for businesses. Yeah. So, you know, if you're starting a business, a startup, you can sign up, you can get our card, and you also can get our account in which you can send wires and checks and ACH and, sure. you know. All the things that you need from a corporate standpoint that exactly. would make you look like any Fortune 500 company. Exactly. From an execution standpoint. You know, and I say this sometimes, but like I, I didn't have a really hard time fundraising. Like, you know, it, it would be a cooler story if I could say I, I had like, you know, 20 no's and then I finally got to yes. Yeah. That happened in the first company. And the second yeah. company was much easier. Yeah. So we had, you know, kind of 7 million bucks out of the gate to kind of do things our own way. Yeah. yeah. And you've now done your Series C on Brex, right? Yeah. All right. So 
Was the B and the C much easier because, again, your past success and the fact that the A was was touted and those investors who came in the A were some name investors and were doing quite well? So did that make the B to C almost a foregone conclusion? And did you have to turn away people at that point? No, the A was the easiest. Oh, the A was yeah. the easiest. Um, because in the A, it was, again, it was mostly around our reputation. We didn't yeah. have like a single line of code. So, you know, it's like either you like us and believe in our idea or not, right? It's a very easy decision. Okay. The B and the C, we, you know, we needed to have a real business. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of potential problems of our business, right? And we need to convince people that we're going to go over them. Like, yes. if it was easy, you know, people would have done it. And there's a lot of risk. So, mm-hmm. It was less about a reputation, more about the real business and the revenue numbers, the growth and mm-hmm. all these things. So rumor has it that Brex is now valued over $2 billion. And once again, you're disrupting the technology space. And you have scaled now to 400 people. What have you learned about building a company to that size from the people angle? Because that's also a very tough space for entrepreneurs as they make the journey from founder to CEO. Yeah, I think like the most important learning is that your job changes every six months and you just have to deal with it. You know, your job in the beginning is like between zero and getting a product that works and people want is one. And then after that, you know, when you're managing first line managers, you know, it's another one. And then when you're managing 400 people, like my co-founder spends his whole day writing. Wow. And and you may ask, like, what is he writing? He's just writing company-wide communications to align strategy and culture and like these kind of things. Okay. And that's the job at yeah. 400 people. Your job is writing. You, you can't do anything yourself anymore. Everything needs to be done through people. So recruiting becomes extremely important. And when recruiting, you know, initially, like, you want to recruit someone who knows how to do the exact things. And after, you know, you get a little bit bigger, you want to recruit great leaders. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes great leaders, you don't know how to evaluate them too much, right? So a lot of the evaluation comes from back channel. So everything changes as the company scales and you just have to adapt. But we were lucky that along the way, we got a lot of great mentors and support to kind of help us, you know, figure it out. Outstanding. That, that is outstanding. Now, what about your thoughts about recruiting from outside the U.S.? So we do have a Vancouver office, and okay. the reason we opened that Vancouver office was so we can import all the people outside of the U.S. and get an easier visa. Okay. <laughs> um, so the visa process is very complicated, um, but you know, a lot of them just take time. Yes. And uh, so we offered them, hey, why don't we come work with us in Vancouver, which is a two-hour flight. You can yes. still come and visit the office you know, quite frequently. Yeah. Very, very smart. What's next, Enrique? So for us, the next is now to, you know, kind of scale more the company and try to get every business uh, in the U.S. to be a Brex customer. Oh, not just startups. Not just startups. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. And, and now, Enrique, we start a little bit of a tradition on access and opportunity. And it's called a lightning round. Okay. It's a fun way for our listeners to get to know you as a person. <laughs> and so we ask you questions in rapid fire, and you answer in three words or fewer. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Favorite book or magazine? Uh, the Innovator's Dilemma. City or the countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. Pele or Neymar? Neymar. Coffee or tea? Uh, Red Bull. Ah. <laughs> Email, phone call, or text? Phone call. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Probably Bill Gates. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be super interesting. Well, because you're still in the decade of your 20s, this sounds like a long-range question, but what's one word that you'd like to describe your legacy? Dream big. Enrique, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you all for joining us for another exciting season of Access and Opportunity. And while we work on season five, check out more of our content on the Morgan Stanley Inclusive Innovation and Opportunity page. You can follow the link in these episode notes. See you next time.